Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're uh, kind of taking a step back. We're in the book of Acts, but we're, Mark is going to do an overview of, of uh, Paul and his views on end times. And I think this will be very interesting. Let's open with a word of prayer. Uh, thanks, Lord, for allowing us to uh, study your word and to have uh, Mark lead these studies uh, in his we appreciate his uh, diligence and thorough investigation of your word and bless this time together in Jesus name amen good evening amen. mark good evening it's good to be back with everyone again i'm not going to review a lot tonight because we spent all of last week's session reviewing and uh, we didn't get into the material here but what we have seen in the trials of paul which uh, take up all of Acts 23, 24, 25, 26, is that Paul over and over again is referring to the hope of Israel and the resurrection, and he's using those two terms synonymously. And we need to see why he does this, and, and most of us have completely, completely missed this connection, and it's one of the key reasons that dispensationalism has flourished in the last 100 years in the United States is because so few of the rest of us understand Paul's view of the resurrection that he has used as his defense over and over in these three chapters in the book of Acts. Now, our, our friend Don Preston of Ardmore, Oklahoma, he's been asking this question for many, many years to anyone that wants to uh, discuss these type of matters with him. He asks them right off the bat, if your end time hopes, which would include the second coming of Christ, the judgment day, and the resurrection of the dead, are your end times hopes based upon the Old Testament promises that God made to Israel? And I mean, he he tells story after story after story. Uh, no one has used profanity, <laughs> but but uh, if they say they don't just say no in answer to the question, they say absolutely no, or they yell at you know no loudly and rudely. Nobody wants to link 
and these are, you know, Christians, evangelical, non-dispensational evangelical Christians in America, they do not want their end times hopes connected in any ways to any of the Old Testament promises made to Israel. So I just say that as a point to keep in mind as we look at this. And, and in our own mind, you know, I mean, if somebody had asked me 20 years ago, you know, that question or, or a question like, what connection does Old Testament Israel have to the resurrection, I would have said, well, none, except maybe, you know, some of them might be resurrected uh, bodily along with the rest of us. I mean, I wouldn't have had a clue. And, and most Christians today don't have a clue. Most non-dispensational Christians who believe in the Bible as the Word of God do not have a clue that there's any connection at all between the common, commonly discussed Christian topics of resurrection, judgment, etc., with any promises made to Old Testament Israel. But yet, as we've just seen in Acts 23-26, Paul is claiming that there is a strong connection. So there's, we see a total disconnect between the views of Paul and the views of modern Christians. And I believe this, again, gets to the root of why we have not been able to effectively refute dispensationalism. Now, let's go to Isaiah 25. We, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah 22, 23, 24, which was all about a prediction of complete catastrophic judgment on Old Testament Israel. But as, as often happens in these prophecies, God switches tenor suddenly, and he does that in, in what we now call chapter 25. Remember, the chapter divisions were not, were not original. They're fairly recent in human history. But, well, wait, let me go to 1 Corinthians 15 first. 1 Corinthians is a letter Paul is, is, is writing to the Church of Corinth, and the 15th chapter is all about his view of the resurrection. And he has a very lengthy, you know, discourse uh, here, but I'm going to pick up in verse 51. Behold, I speak a mystery to you. We, sh we shall not all fall asleep, but we all shall be changed. Now, he's writing in the first century to people who are alive in the first century. And he's telling them that they will not all fall asleep, and that's a euphemism for physically uh, dying. In a moment, in a glance of an eye or a twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet, for it, it shall sound. And trumpets in the Old Testament are a sign of judgment. The, the destruction of Jericho was accompanied by trumpet blasts. The, the blast of a trumpet is a symbol for judgment in the Bible. So a trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. Okay, but again, he's writing to people in the first century, and he's telling them that this is going to happen before some of them physically die. He says, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. 
But when this corruptible shall put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on immortality, then will take place the word that has been written. Death was swallowed up in victory. And he's quoting from Isaiah 25, verse 8. Okay? Now, his readers would have all been familiar with the context of Isaiah 25. Well, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, I think. It's what we call the Gospel Feast, because everyone understands that it's, for, it's a prediction of the future Messianic kingdom. And here it's described as a banquet. And he says, picking up in verse 6, In this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the leaves, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the leaves well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. Would you want to take a guess as to what Isaiah is talking about with this covering or this veil? Well, he tells us in verse 8, he will swallow up death in victory. This is what Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15. And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people he will remove from the earth, for the Lord has spoken it. Okay? Now, this is all peoples for all nations, and they're going to be sitting on the top of one mountain. Anyone want to hazard a guess as to which mountain he's talking about? Mike's Peak? No, not okay. that one. It's uh, the it's Mount Zion, okay? And could this be a physical mountain? If all the nations of the earth are all going to have a feast on the top of it, doesn't make sense. So we have a a mountain that represents God's eternal kingdom okay some he represents it by a land the land that he promised to abraham he represents it as a city the city of david jerusalem he represents it as a mountain mount zion which was part of jerusalem and sometimes he represents it by a temple or a tabernacle which sat on the on the side of mount zion in jerusalem but all of these are physical symbols of a spiritual reality, a spiritual kingdom that will be open to all the nations of the world. Now, another question that John Preston asks everyone is, have all of God's promises to Israel been fulfilled, and, and if so, with what Bible event did that occur? And nearly everybody... Again, that same audience, non-dispensational, evangelical-type people who believe in the Bible. They say that, yes, God has finished all of his promises to Israel, and they'll either say that he was through with them at the cross, or on the day of Pentecost, or at A.D. 70. Okay, But here's a promise from Isaiah 25 
where God is going to destroy death. Okay? And this promise is given to Old Testament Israel. So if God's promises to Israel have all been completed, then Isaiah 25 has also been completed and death has already been destroyed. Okay, so can you catch a little bit of the power of that? Okay, so that's just one Old Testament passage that Paul is alluding to in the defenses that he's making in Acts 23 through 26. If we can demonstrate that there is not one Old Testament passage that predicts a future physical resurrection with dead bodies coming out of the ground, then we can't find anything that would have caused Paul to believe in such an event. And as, as we pointed out, this may be the exact reason that the Pharisees, who had first commended him for his views, began prosecuting him and demanding his immediate destruction, because his view of the resurrection was not theirs. But yet Paul tells us over and over again that his view of the resurrection is the view of God spoken through the old prophets to Israel. And so now we, as long promised, we want to go to Ezekiel 37. This is the most prominent passage in the Old Testament on resurrection. And we need to understand the context of this historically or we, we won't be able to understand the import of, of some of the terms here in Ezekiel 37. But Ezekiel was born into a priestly family in Judah shortly before the Babylonians carried off all of the middle class and remaining upper class citizens of Jerusalem and carried them off into captivity to Babylon, modern day Iraq. And they resettled them in little farming communities in some of the by some of the irrigation ditches that were fed off the Tigris and Euphrates rivers over there. So Sadly, many Americans are probably now familiar with some of the geography and the climate and whatnot over there. But it's quite different from the terrain and climate uh, at Jerusalem, where Ezekiel was born. By the time Ezekiel was born, you must remember that the ten northern tribes of Israel had been gone for 150 years. They had been carried off by the Assyrians and dispersed into the farthest most reaches of their empire. Uh, and at the same time, 90% of the population of Judah was captured and carried off and dispersed through the far reaches of the Assyrian Empire. So only the people inside Jerusalem survived because God intervened to save them. And then they repopulated uh, Judah uh, from this remnant. So Ezekiel has grown up amongst this remnant that has repopulated Judah, and it would be, you know, within two or three generations of them remembering 90% of Israel being carted off, never to be heard from again. 
So there's this tiny remnant of of what what were called Judahites at the time, and these were Israelites who were from the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, with just a scattering of all of the other tribes, you know, mixed in. Anyone that could get away and get into Jerusalem survived. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, when he's a young man, he and all the people he would have dealt with are carried away to Babylon by the Babylonians. And the whole book of Ezekiel is written from modern-day Iraq, uh, by the rivers of Babylon, a famous psalm of despair of these captives, and they are absolutely devastated. They were the remnant, and now they've been carried off. And, and as the book starts, there's just the poorest people have been left along with a few uh, collaborators who have been put in charge by the Babylonians to rule the country, and everybody else uh, is in Babylonian captivity. So, as a nation, they viewed their status as pretty bleak, wouldn't you say? I mean, if you can imagine, you know, you all of a sudden being forced to live in a prison camp in outer Mongolia. Everything that we've known in America is gone. And uh, we're now living in a prison camp in outer Mongolia. That's kind of the situation. Uh, That's the setting of Ezekiel. Okay. Uh, Ezekiel, in chapter 37, is carried away by God in its translated valley, a valley full of dry bones, but it's actually a plain. It's an extremely wide valley, like the Salt River Valley near Phoenix or the San Joaquin Valley of California, not a narrow canyon like you'd find in the mountains, but this is the plains of Babylon. And uh, he's out on the plains of Babylon, and out on his plains is this pile of dead bones. And God caused Ezekiel to pass all around these bones, and there were a lot of bones. And these bones were very dry. They were not fresh bones. These were long, dead bones. And God asks Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel was very diplomatic. He says, well, Lord, you know. (laughs) You know the answer to your question. And Ezekiel is told to prophesy to these bones and to tell them to listen to the word of God. And God says, I will cause my spirit to enter into you, and you shall live. And then he talks about recreating the bodies uh, in verse 6, and then uh, God putting his spirit back in you, and you will live again, and you will know that I am Yahweh who have done this. And so Ezekiel does as he's told, and he sees these bones all come together, and then he sees the sinews, and then he sees the flesh come back on them, and they're, they're complete bodies, but there's no life in them. And then God tells him to prophesy unto the Spirit and tell the Spirit, From the four winds come, O Spirit, and breathe on these slain 
so that they might live. And Ezekiel did this, and this breath or wind like a spirit came into them, and they got up on their feet, and they started breathing uh, a very, very great army. So this is this great vision. We might think that this teaches of individual bodily resurrection at the end of time, except for verse 11, which says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is dead. We are cut off to ourselves. So these bones are not individual corpses in the grave. They represent the whole house of Israel, which as I've said at this moment in time, the whole house of Israel is totally decimated. And remember Paul in his trials in Acts says, this is the hope of Israel to which all 12 tribes earnestly hope to attain, you know, waiting for it night and day. I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he said in one of his trials. So, the, Israel as a kingdom is dead. I mean, that's the gist of what verse 11 is saying. But he's saying, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. Now, if, if he's speaking to physically dead people, could they be thinking or speaking? Well, obviously not. So, he is speaking to people who are physically alive, but who are spiritually dead. Verse 12 says, so prophesy and tell them, so says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, O my people, and I will bring you to the land of Israel. And you will know that I am Yahweh when I have opened your graves and brought you up out of your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will put you on your own land. And you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and have done it, says Yahweh. So the idea of land is very important to understand here. And it's very, of course, important to understand in the context of current events. This land that was promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12, it's described in Hebrews. He looked, Abraham looked forward to a city that was greater than any you know, physical city. He looked to a land that was greater than any physical piece of real estate. He's talking about this land. Now, to an Israelite, the land was being in the presence of God. It was almost like a little version of the Garden of Eden. And in fact, the Jews claim that the Garden of Eden actually was situated on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And I don't say that to say that there's any evidence of that, but I say that to, to in, in their thinking, the Temple in Jerusalem and the presence of God was a restoration of the Garden of Eden where man could live 
in God's presence. So when they got into the promised land and they had God's tabernacle and then later built Solomon's temple and they saw God's presence descend and live in it, they knew that God was there with them. That they were That's what made it the promised land, not because it was choice real estate, but because it was a place in which God had said he would dwell with them. And God had told them over and over again if they rebelled against him, he would vomit them out of the land, which is exactly what's happened to Ezekiel and all of his friends. They have been vomited out of the land, and they are in exile. They cannot follow the law of Moses. They cannot offer any sacrifices for their sins. So they are dead to God. They are separated from God. And that's, you have to understand that, to understand this idea of resurrection. But we see that the living is tied to being brought back to their own land here in the first half of Ezekiel 37. Okay? And this promise of the Spirit, you know, they saw the Spirit of God descend when Solomon's temple was dedicated, but when they dedicated the second temple, they never saw that. It never happened. God's throne room was empty. Herod had rebuilt the temple at great expense, and there was, they never saw God's Spirit descend upon it. God was not there, even though they, some of them came back from exile in Babylon. God was not with them in the land. They were spiritually dead until Messiah come to restore them to God's presence. And of course, Jesus came, and we see the Spirit of God descending on him at his baptism. So this fulfilled all of their hopes that they'd been waiting for 500 years. And yet... (laughs) They could not appreciate it. And uh, again, sadly, many of our dispensational friends cannot appreciate it either. On the day of Pentecost, of course, Christ's body was gone. It was consumed as he returned to the spiritual realm at, at what we call his ascension. And his new body was a corporate body of believers which do make up this spiritual kingdom. And on the day of Pentecost, all of these promises made to Old Testament Israel about the Spirit coming back into Israel, it was fulfilled there on the day of Pentecost. So, in Ezekiel 37, the first part, we see resurrection tied into God restoring His Spirit to the people and in God restoring the people to the land. Now we go into the second part, uh, beginning in verse 15. God's, uh, the word of Yahweh spoke to Ezekiel again, said, You, son of man, take one stick to yourself and write on it for Judah and his companions, the sons of Israel, and take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. So these two sticks, what do they represent? They represent the two houses of Israel, the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom, and they represent all 12 tribes of Israel, just as the dead bones represented all 12 tribes of Israel. So he's got these two sticks that represent these two separated parts of Israel. 
the sundered physical kingdom. Okay, what's he supposed to do with these two sticks? He says, draw them one to one for yourself into one stick, and they shall become one in your hand. Or put them together in your hand so that they, t- they stick out of both sides of your hand, and it looks like you're holding one stick. And when the sons of your people will ask you, saying, won't you tell us what these mean? Then tell them, says Yahweh, behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put him with the stick of Judah, and I will make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from amongst all the nations where they have gone. And that's exactly where they were when Ezekiel received this message. They were scattered into all the foreign nations. I will gather them from all around, and I will bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be a king to all of them. They will not be two nations anymore. They will not be split into two kingdoms anymore. And they will not be defiled with idols, even their filthy idols, nor with their transgressions. I will save them out of all their dwelling places where they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they will be a people for me, and I will be a God to them. And my servant David will be king over them. There will be one shepherd to all of them, and they shall walk in my judgments and keep my statutes to do them. And they will dwell in the land that I have given to my servant Jacob, there were your fathers dwelt in it. And they will dwell on it, they and their sons, and the sons of their sons, forever. And my servant David will be a ruler to them forever. I will cut a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. I will place them and multiply them. And I will put my sanctuary in their midst forever. And my tabernacle shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people And when my sanctuary shall be in their midst forever, the nations will know that I, Yahweh, set apart Israel. So everyone agrees that this is about Jesus ruling on the throne of David. Even the dispensationalists agree uh, to that. But you see, the setting up of the kingdom is tied in to the restoration of Israel which was corrupt, dissolute. I mean, there was nothing left of it. They're they're going to be restored. We've been looking at this theme throughout the book of Acts, the restoration of Israel. And that's what Ezekiel 37 is all about. And so the resurrection is tied in to the ingathering of Israel, the restoration of the 12 tribes, and the enthronement, of Christ as king and, most importantly, of him setting up his tabernacle in their midst. And you should think of the end of the book of Revelation because that's exactly what's happened. You see the new tabernacle, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, perfect and complete and The announcer says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, which is exactly what Ezekiel 37, verse 28, has just said. So these things are 
all about the same events that occurred in the days of Christ and the apostles. And, you know, we've made these things really, really complicated. We can see, let's, let's go over to Ephesians 2. This is another letter written by Paul, the guy who has been on trial for three chapters in the book of Acts. And listen to this. And then think about it in light of what Paul has been saying in his trials and, and Ezekiel and Isaiah. He says, writing to the Christians at Ephesus, he says, And you, being dead in trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the authority of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience, guess who they are, among whom we also all conducted ourselves in times past in the lusts of our flesh, doing the things willed by the flesh and of the understanding, and were by nature the children of wrath, just as the others. He's talking about the Judeans compared to the other nations of the world. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even we being dead in trespasses, he did make us alive together with Christ. This, these are the two sticks of Ezekiel 37. Okay, the, the, uh, the Judean and the Gentile. He has made us alive together. Now, if you're dead and now you're alive, what do you call that? What's the word for that? You were dead and now you've been made alive. What, what's that called? Resurrection. Thank you. It's, see, it's right here. It's, it's plain. It's very simple. But our traditions have completely obscured it. Okay, so he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are being saved. And raised us up together. And seated us together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What kind of place is this mountain what kind of place is this new temple? What kind of place is this land promised to Abraham? It's the heavenly places of Ephesians 2, verse 6. So that he might demonstrate in the ages that are coming, as Paul wrote this, I will add, the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works that anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Because of this, remember that you, the nations of the flesh, those who were called uncircumcision by those who were called circumcision, in the flesh made by hands, you at that time were without Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, if you couldn't be in the presence of God, you had no hope. And this is one of these uh, passages that's been changed by all the translators. He's writing to non-Judeans in Ephesus. Okay? 
He says that clearly right here. You are the uncircumcision. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And the, the, the King James translators, they couldn't stomach the way Paul wrote it. So they changed it to read, you are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. But that's not what Paul said. Every Greek scholar in the world agrees that what Paul said was, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Which means that at one time, all of the nations were party to God's plan for Old Covenant Israel. Which verse is that, Mark? That is Ephesians 2, verse 12. So, so I mean, look at all the themes of Ezekiel 37 that Paul is repeating in Ephesians 2. The idea that being in God's presence is life, being separated from God's presence is death, uh, the, the fact from Isaiah 25 that this is a mountain, uh, I mean, that this is a spiritual place, a heavenly place, um, not a physical piece of real estate, that Christ is the ruler that reunites all of Israel together and restores them, that they're not anymore going to have to follow the law of Moses they're not going to have to worry about circumcision. And then continuing in verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were then far off came near by the blood of Christ. So the, the way you enter into this spiritual kingdom is through the blood of Christ. And it's not talking about physical blood as much as our dispensational friends might wish that it was, they demand on interpreting the Bible physically. I mean, can you imagine what a drop of Jesus' blood would sell for on eBay? If you had the DNA providence to prove that it was actually a drop of the blood of Jesus of Nazareth. But is it really worth anything? You, you see what I'm saying? That's not what the that's not the blood that Paul's talking about. He's talking about a spiritual concept of healing that is represented by the symbol of the blood of Christ. Just like a mountain or a land or a temple, a body of believers, these all represent the spiritual concept of the eternal kingdom of God. Continuing in verse 14, for he is our peace, he makes us both one, he's the Judean and the Gentile, and breaks down the middle wall of partition in his flesh uh, causing to cease the, the flesh of Christ, causing to cease the enmity, the law of the commandments and decrees that he might in himself, in the body of Christ, the spiritual body of Christ, create from the two, one new man making peace and might reconcile both in one body to God through the cross, slaying the enmity in himself. And, and again, getting rid of the law, he said in verse 15. And, and coming, he proclaimed good news. Peace to you, the ones far off, 
the Gentiles and the ones near the Judeans. And that's a quote from Isaiah 57, another promise made to Old Covenant Israel. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So there's the spirit from Ezekiel 37. You are no longer strangers, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and of the family of God, being built up on the foundation of the apostles. See, this is a spiritual building, because the apostles and prophets are a foundation. Do you think they would have made a good physical foundation? The bones of the apostles and the prophets? In whom all the building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God's Spirit. Okay, that's how Paul closes Ephesians 2, and that's how Ezekiel 37 ended, remember? He said, The nations will know that I, Yahweh, have sanctified Israel when my sanctuary or temple will be in the midst of them forever. Every theme of Ezekiel 37 is found in Ephesians chapter 2. So, can we safely conclude that Paul, when he's saying the resurrection, my resurrection view is the hope of Israel, can we, it's not too much of a stretch to say that he's thinking of Ezekiel 37 when he's making his defense in Acts. Does that make sense? So, I mean, this is rather, it's a radical shock, but the death that Christ came to cure is not physical death. He came to cure sin death or spiritual separation from God. And that's what Paul describes in Ephesians 2. He said, you were dead in your sins, and now he has made you alive. You now have eternal life. That, as Chuck said, that is resurrection. That is Paul's hope of Israel. That is Paul's promise of resurrection given over and over to the prophets. And we see that throughout all of Paul's writings, and we see it in Paul's defense in Acts 23 through 26. But, I mean, all of us have been looking at these things for decades and it's right in front of us. And, you know, we still are trying to think of the resurrection as some still future event, that Christ still has unfinished business, that he hasn't quite got around to conquering, you know, his final enemy, which is death. Some of these things were still future when Paul wrote, but they were, as we saw, they were to be fulfilled within the lifetime of those that he was writing to. And we, you know, again, we can summarize this saying that the old physical, dead, empty temple had to be swept away to, it was the shadow of the perfect which was coming. And as God swept away that old, imperfect, dead shadow, then the true spiritual temple was completed, dedicated, and took its place, and that coincided with 
you know, his terrible, terrible judgment upon um, the old, dead, physical, perverted kingdom of Israel. And when did he render that judgment? Between the year roughly of 67 and 70 A.D. And how do we know that? Well, it's a historical fact that is uh, recorded uh, by you know, many different authors, but we primarily know it because it's predicted over and over and over again by Jesus himself, by all the apostles, and that it's clearly stated that it would happen within the lifetime of those people then living. And the events that occurred between 67 and 70 are the only events that completely fill all of those promises and expectations. And, and, and it's you mean not Nero's persecution of the Christians? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, that's part of it. That's the Great Tribulation part of it that's described in, uh, well, it's mentioned in many, many of the letters, but, of course, most famously in the book of Revelation as the three and a half years or however many days that works out to, 1,280 days or whatever. And the blood running in the gulch, deep as the horse's reins, what was that? The people of Judea were utterly slaughtered, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Palestine, but throughout the known world. The entire Jewish quarter of, of uh, Alexandria was slaughtered. The, Jewish, the Jews in Damascus were slaughtered. The Jews in Babylon were slaughtered. This was a worldwide conflagration. I mean, Rome was judged also. Rome went through a period of chaos unlike any in their history before or after uh, during that same period of time. Had seven kings within three and a half years. And there's many, I mean, I don't, we can't get into that, but I mean, there's many, many, many books that, that go into all of the events of that period of time and match them up to all of these predictions in the Bible. And, and then and what then, about what about you mentioned earlier Christ's imminent return? What what about that? When did that happen? At the same time as the the judgment, the the destruction of the Judean nation throughout the entire known world, the destruction of the old temple. This was his coming that was promised within that generation. I mean, in Matthew 23, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, Luke 21. Um, it, it's in all of the letters. Jude talks about it. John, Peter, P, uh, Paul, over and over and over again. You know, soon the book of Revelation. I'm writing this so you will know what's about to happen, what's soon to come to pass. Those who pierced him will see him coming. Revelation 1.7. I don't know too many of those Pharisees or Roman soldiers who are still alive today, do you? But it says that those who pierced him shall see him coming on the clouds. And this, this is the common language of the Old Testament prophets. When God predicted the destruction of Nineveh or the destruction of Babylon or of Tyre and Sidon, he spoke of all those as him coming in the clouds of glory. and So, so what he, did Jesus set up then when he came in the clouds 
in the second in in the between 67 and 70 AD what the kingdom of god which the you, you have a 40 year period roughly from the time that John the Baptist started preaching repent the kingdom of god is at hand and that means soon it's coming right now Behold, who warned you vipers to flee the wrath that is coming? The but Jesus walked, walked in right behind John. He was already there. Yep. John prepared the way. Uh, so that's, so sta that's standard everywhere. From, from the time that John began preaching to the destruction of Jerusalem, what is about a span of 40 years. And during the, the kingdom of God is being established... It's in the building process uh, during those 40 years. And it is dedicated at the end. This idea of the uh, second coming, the, the Greek word is parousia, and it really means making one's presence known. It, it's used in the technical sense of a ruler, a sovereign ruler, making his presence felt even if he is not physically present. So, uh, parousia is very poorly translated well, coming in, Mark, in the King James Bible. Wouldn't a, dis, wouldn't a dispensationalist say you have everything right, Mark, except Jesus just hasn't come back yet? Well, yeah, what, would, that, what, would, yeah. what would their argument be that's any different? I don't see that, that you've really said anything that's different I mean, their interpretation of of these uh, of, of Ezekiel 37, 38, 39, and so on, uh, and back and of course Isaiah, we we sing the Messiah about that. That's the theme of Handel's Messiah. Handel knew that all yes. of that, you know, in the 17th century, whenever he wrote the Messiah. So, except for when <laughs> Jesus has come back, it seems. I mean, the restoration of Israel, Israel's right to the land, all of that. I don't see much difference in the interpretations. Well, well one of the no, differences... Just, yeah, go Thank yeah. you, Tom. Go ahead. <laughs> one of the differences is the fact that the dispensationalists believe that the book of Revelation was written in 90, and so that makes everything a future event then, saying that it didn't, all this didn't happen. So they can throw all that into the future. They have to, because they have to shift the the emphasis, which is on the, the pure evil of the Judean nation, which is the theme of the whole New Testament. They have to shift that to Rome, and they can only do that by changing the date that the book was written uh, to a period after Judea was gone as a nation. But... But more than that, I mean, what's different is everything is different. Because, the, remember, the dispensationalist says all of these promises are yet to be fulfilled physically. And we are saying all these promises have been fulfilled spiritually. And so it's like night and day. And sure, again, that's, yeah. and that's why it's so hard to have any discussion with the dispensationalists because they cannot even comprehend the idea 
of an eternal spiritual kingdom, even though the Bible is full of it. Virtually every page of the Bible is written to teach about an eternal spiritual kingdom. The dispensationalists cannot see it, cannot even grasp the concept. And so it's impossible to have any fruitful Bible discussion uh, you know, with them because their definition of kingdom, of throne, of blood, of everything, they have a physical concept, and the Bible teaches a spiritual concept of all of these things. Tell me somebody, I mean, it's been out stational churches, and we were all taught that Christ's kingdom was a spiritual one. I mean, everybody from uh, the ancient Lutherans on up have always said that. I, I, everybody except dispensationalists. I mean, they, well, no, the dispensationalists they, toss in a thousand-year reign that they have patched physical, in a, as an earthly uh, punctuation point in, in, in the, along the way. Um, in physical Jerusalem. But, but, but all dispensationalists believe that when you die, you meet Jesus. They believe that too. They don't believe that you go to purgatory for a thousand years or something like that. I don't know how the Catholics view it, but I don't, I don't see that dispensationalists think that people that die wait for a, a resurrection of, a, of an earthly kingdom where their body is present and that they bypass heaven and hell for until that happens. I, I, I didn't know that if that's... Uh, if that's well, there, there, I, I, I don't waste my time studying the thousands of variations yeah, of dispensation thought, you know. Uh, but I know some of them uh, do definitely uh, do that, but I don't know what the majority thought on that. I would the, think the like point. the Southern Baptists, they teach uh, <laughs> that when you die. That's the, that's the great uh, paradox of it is that... Uh, you die, you go to heaven, but if you live and then you're around for the rapture and all of that, then it's a whole different game. Well, yeah, it's almost a disappointment to have to go to heaven. I mean, yeah, if you yeah. have the chance to be part of the physical kingdom, yeah, that right. Jesus will rule from his physical body yeah. in the physical throne of David in physical Jerusalem. Well, how does this view that you're presenting... How does it work discussing it with dispensationalists? How do they respond? Well, they, <laughs> they, they uh, very few have any clue what you're even talking about. I mean, this is, this is a con these spiritual concepts are beyond their ability to comprehend uh, in, in many ways. They've been taught so long of uh, a physical fulfillment of all these things. So, I mean, you, you don't get a chance. Most of them can't discuss these things very well anyway. They've never really thought through all the things they've been told their whole lives and realized the inconsistencies. When you start pointing them out, you know, they're not happy. They, yeah. they are, they're confused. They think that you're just some nut job from outer space because, you know. They, well, you know, we, they, went, we went through with this individuals that we did. Tom, I'm sure you can edit all this out. We went through this with the vigils we did in our creation of messages on signs. And we went from 
the church is Israel now. You know, we tried that. And one person in a hundred would have any some idea, or maybe a thousand, would have some sense of what you're talking about. And we went from that to who would Jesus bomb, and they all understand that. I mean, the way of approaching dispensationalists is... See, I, I agree with you 100%. It has to be absolutely simple, or that you have no chance of getting through to them. Right, I agree. Because they've been, yeah. they've been preached complication, which they really don't understand. Their head is full of enormous complication that's been fed to them over and over and over again until it becomes rote and they, and they accept it. But to change them, you've got to come up with something so simple that it hits them directly between the eyes and they can't get it out of their mind. I, I know I have that happen to me all the time with music. So, some of it you can't get out of your mind, right? Yes. Some of those songs we sing in the Church of Christ, you get them stuck in your mind and you think about them all week. But, uh, yep. yep. You, know, you know what I think? I think Tom's thing... Uh, statement and, uh, that he's made before uh, is apropos. I can I can get along with anybody's opinion of what it says until it results in killing people. Uh huh. That's what Tom said. Yeah. I think I think that's a good argument. It is. It is really a good argument. Well, particularly since the callousness you you experienced uh, with yeah. what's happened in Gaza, it's just uh, unbelievable how. Yeah. Uh, that all goes back to this is our land. God gave it to us in Genesis twelve three. So nothing else matters. It's our land. Don't you right. don't you don't you think you have a right to your land? Would you let someone take your land away from you? I guess not. You know that's the. That's the argument of the Zionists. Yeah, but a Christian is supposed to. Uh, well, of course, there were the Crusades and everything else, so I guess you can <laughs> blow that argument. Peace loving. Yeah, but that's people. That's not. That's not following Jesus. I mean, that's the point. They. they well, uh, you know, and Chuck McCollum, I think it was, who helped on this, but. That's the only way to really understand why in the physical corrupt version of Israel they fought physically and they destroyed their enemies utterly. When we understand God's eternal purpose to transform Israel into a perfect spiritual kingdom, which was the work of Christ and the apostles in the first century to accomplish that, you see... That does away with all of those. You can't go to those Old Testament precedents and say, well, see, that's, it's all right for God's kingdom to do that today, to, to slaughter innocent children and women, you know, mm -hmm. because the kingdom is now perfect and it has been transformed into a spiritual kingdom. And Paul is very explicit. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they are spiritual we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. We have been given all power to overthrow all spiritual enemies. And so, I mean, it's fundamental. But if you have a dispensationalist who's locked into that the, the ideal in God's mind is the restoration of 
dead, carnal, murderous Israel, well then, yeah, it's fine to butcher innocent children. Yeah, that's how it works. That, that, that's why. That's why you have to. You have to understand the typology of the scriptures, which everybody understood until Schofield's Bible came out. You have to understand the symbolism in the Gospel of John, the whole book talking about the spiritual temple that God is building, that Jesus is dedicating with his own blood. Um, you, you know, you have to understand those concepts. They were readily understood before Schofield. And, but now, even the people that don't use Schofield don't know it anymore because they, they borrow all their books from the Southern Baptist seminaries. And, and, and the non-dispensational churches have been poisoned by this physical thinking of dispensationalism. And, and some of it you know, has carried through Catholicism, um, the ancient pagan Greek views of the body and the soul and hell and torment and the devil and all of those kind of things. They're not biblical. They're pagan. And uh, yet they've, they've carried down you know, to all of us, and we, we don't understand how much they have really impacted us, I'm afraid. I got one quick thing that I think, Mark, when you were talking about the bad interpretation uh, or the translation of uh, Perusa or whatever it was. Parousia, yeah. Parousia. I think that's important because coming Everybody says in 70 A.D. he didn't come. But right, you're because saying... They, yes, because they're saying they want a physical body. They want the, the physical body that he lived in to reappear. Right. And since that did not happen, and everybody agrees that that did not happen in A.D. 70, therefore right. he could not have come again. But, well, what's uh, that word again mean? Uh, it make his presence known. Was that the yeah, deal? Yeah, presence. It means yeah, presence okay. is is how you translate it in one word. But it's a little more involved than that. And uh, that there, there was a small town congregational preacher in the 1880s who wrote a book called the Parousia, and he just looks at every verse in the New Testament where that word is used, and he <laughs> dem- he and he shows how that every single one of those occurred but by A.D. 70. Every promise related to parousia or making his presence felt was all accomplished, just as Luke 21:22 clearly, clearly states. And I'll just read that again here. After describing all of the agonies of Jerusalem being destroyed... Christ says, Let those in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the nations come back into Judea. For these are the days of vengeance in which all things that have been written are to be fulfilled. That's that's how Jesus summed it up. Uh, which, Which verse is that, Mark? Luke 21, verse 22. Okay. But that book by Russell called The Parousia, I mean, it, it just, once you just read every verse that uses that Greek word parousia, it becomes 
really obvious. He got himself a Ph.D. for that book. It was so well written, so well documented, that two different schools gave him an honorary Ph.D. for publishing that book. Can you give that reference for that bookmark? Well, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A, James Stewart Russell. J. Stewart Russell. Thanks for that lesson, Mark. It was very interesting, and all the input was very, very interesting. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.